Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Uh, I was excited to bring Jonah chapter 3 to you. Now, it's interesting to kind of pick up in the middle of a book. Sometimes that's not the best idea. But the good thing for us, Jonah is so well known. Uh, Most people know the story of Jonah. Jonah was a, a prophet of God, and God called him to go to Nineveh and proclaim his message. Jonah didn't want to go. He ran away. He went the opposite direction. But God didn't allow that. He, he stopped him with a storm. Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed by the great fish. He was there three days, and we see the psalm of Jonah in chapter 2. And then right there at the end of chapter 2, right before our text, we read these words. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry ground, upon the dry land. So there's our context. We have a prophet there on the shore waiting. So as we walk through today's passage, we use these three hangers, or three points, if you will, uh, to understand God's message to us. One, we want to recognize the power of God's Word. Secondly, we want to evaluate faith and repentance and what that looks like. And thirdly, I hope that we will marvel at our great God, who chose rather than to punish the wicked, to relent from the disaster that he said he would do to the guilty. Let's begin where... We should begin in verse 1. Starting in verse 1, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, this is a formula for God speaking to his people through the prophets in the Old Testament. See, the prophets were the spokesmen of God. They brought God's message to the people. So rather than speaking directly to all the people, God spoke to the prophet, and the prophet brought the message to the people. You can think about Moses at Mount Sinai when God came down on the mountain in that thick cloud with fire and thunder, lightning in the ear-splitting trumpet blast. The Israelites at the bottom of the mountain shook. They trembled in terror and awe before God. And God called Moses, only Moses, to go up the mountain to receive his word. And after receiving it, he returned to share what God had said with his people. See, this was the job of the prophet. So when you're reading your Bible and you come across statements that say, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, like we see the word of the Lord come to Jonah in our passage today, we know that something very important is happening, that the covenant God of Israel is speaking to his people through his servant, the prophet. So notice here in Jonah that God is commissioning him for a second time. While Jonah failed the first time when he fled the call of the Lord in obstinate rebellion, God is giving him a second chance, another opportunity towards obedience. I mean, if you think about it from Jonah's perspective, his whole world has been turned upside down. The last three days in his life, last four days in his life have been out of this world. 
First, when God said, go east or hike east, Jonah sailed west. He was caught in the supernatural storm that God had appointed. He was thrown overboard and swallowed by the fish. He was in the belly of the beast for three days. And then that fish has just spit him up on the dry ground, been regurgitated. I think it would be an understatement to say that Jonah has been through a lot in the last three days. His whole world has been rocked. But notice that God has not changed. That his call to Jonah is the exact same. If you look back at chapter 1, you'll find the same words. God calls Jonah saying, arise, go to Nineveh. That even though all this amazing things have happened to Jonah, God is the same. And he's sovereignly bringing about his plan and his will through his prophet. This is an encouragement to all of us who have failed. All of us that have rebelled. That we serve a God that doesn't give up on us. But time and time again calls us back to himself. Now, you see, God had a plan to send his word to Nineveh through Jonah. And not even a rebellious prophet could keep this from happening. So God is telling Jonah, get up out of that fish vomit and go out and call out this message that I will tell you. Cry out. Go preach a message of judgment against the capital, the powerful empire of Assyria. So given a second chance, it's good to see that Jonah learned his lesson. He obeys exactly. Verse 3 tells us that he arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, we're not really told much about his journey at all. But if you look at a map, you'll see that Nineveh is nowhere near Israel. And it's nowhere near the Mediterranean Sea where Jonah had been out in the boat. So Jonah's got to walk. He's got to hike. I just wonder what went through his head. Here was God sending his prophet to a foreign people. Now, this was very strange. The prophets were for the people of God. Why would God be sending his prophet away from the people of God? Didn't the Israelites need a message from God? And why to the Assyrians? This was a powerful empire that threatened Israel. Eventually, it would wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel right off the map. Why was God sending his prophet to them? As far as Israel was concerned, the Assyrians were a powerful, war-hungry, brutal, pagan, foreign nation. Why would, God, why would God be wasting his word on people like that? You see, God wasn't wasting his word. He was sending it with the purpose of convicting a whole city of their sin. His plan was the revival of a pagan nation, to bring to himself generation of believers that knew nothing of God. What God had in mind was no less than the salvation of an unworthy people as they threw themselves upon the mercy of God. You see, the Ninevites were a people that didn't know God. They didn't honor God. But into the midst of such a people, God sent his word through the faithful preaching of his servant Moses, or of Jonah. So notice what happens in verse 4. Jonah went into the great city of Nineveh and called out a message of condemnation. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He thought about how strange that would be. Here's Nineveh, this huge, thriving city. It's the capital of a great empire. 
at the cutting edge of history. And in walks Jonah, a prophet from a smaller nation, a nation that the Assyrians wanted to conquer. Now, I don't know what he looked like. I don't know what he smelled like. But after his time being inside the fish, being thrown up and hiking across the desert in the scorching sun, I imagine that he wasn't very pleasant physically to be around. I mean, I think of him maybe having like Pigpen in the old uh, Charlie Brown movies, having that cloud that surrounds him. Now, this is this strange foreign prophet from this non-threatening nation walks into the town, into the heart of the city and cries out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's hard to imagine the people taking that seriously. I mean, like, you and what army? What have you to say to us? We're not given any more of his sermon, just this judgment and this destruction. It's almost like Jonah just walked into town, threw down the mic and walked away. We don't even see him for the rest of the chapter. Just this one line. This doesn't seem like a great revival tactic. It doesn't seem like the way that we would go about turning this godless heathen nation from their evil, wicked ways. But it was. We often forget the fact that the power of God is not in the person's presentation or their clever words. No, the power is in God's word itself and in the Holy Spirit applying it directly to people's hearts. When we think about the word of God, from a biblical perspective, we're given a very clear picture. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of to him to whom we must give an account. Isaiah 55 tells us, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. These passages and many others show us that God's word is effective, that God's word is powerful, that God's word doesn't go out and come back empty, but it accomplishes exactly that which God intends. This is what happened in Nineveh. God's preached word by his prophet overwhelmed the people of Nineveh and turned their world upside down. The question is, do we think about God's word that way today? We may know intellectually that the Bible is the word of God, but do we treat it that way? Do we in our hearts and deep down in our bones understand that God chose to give us his word to condescend to us and speak in our language that we might know him, that we might come into relationship with the covenant God of the universe through his son? In it are all things necessary for us to know God's glory, to understand our salvation, to come to faith and have life. May we be people that treat God's word with respect. Let us read it. Let it collect dust on your shelves or become a moral book 
or an instruction manual simply, or an inspirational story. Let us dive deeply into God's Word that we might know Him and know His Son better through it. Another aspect that we should see is the power of God's preached Word. God did not ask Jonah to write a letter to Nineveh. He asked him to go and preach a message to the people of Nineveh. While pastors aren't prophets in the same sense of the word, there is a connection. That what we do here, pastors may not be prophets, but faithful pastors do sit under God's word, meditating, preparing, and praying that God would speak and move mightily through the preaching of the scriptures. That God has ordained preachers to bring his word to his people. And that the preaching of God's word is powerful. While we may not see revival happen like it did there in Nineveh every week, as we sit under the faithful preaching of God's word, there ought to be a sense of anticipation, a wondering, what will God be doing this week through his word? Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones urged people, saying that they, they couldn't imagine missing a single worship service. Because if he missed a sermon, the preaching of God's word, he might miss something amazing. He might miss a sinner coming to Christ for the first time. He might, he might miss uh, seeing the revival of stagnant souls. The word of God itself might be impressed upon his own heart through the spirit. Now I know that as I sit in the congregation with my family, it's sometimes easy to be distracted. It's easy to be distracted with the kids or what we're having for lunch or, or what's going on later in the week. I don't always come with this attitude of expectation. But as we look at what happened in Nineveh, we, may we be people that approach the worship service and the preaching of God's word with reverence, with awe and anticipation as we worship our great God together. Now let's look at the response of Nineveh to this word of God. You look at verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. Notice as the passage doesn't say that they believed Jonah, but rather that they believed God. I mean, this is incredible. The word used here is the same word used to describe Abraham's faith in Genesis 15, verse 6. And he was the father of faith. See, God had called Abraham out of his homeland and promised him descendants. But Abraham was old, and so was Sarah, his wife. Humanly speaking, they weren't going to have children. And yet we have this scene of God coming to Abraham at night. In a pitch black night, says, come out of your tent. And he said to him, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And in the next verse we read, and Abraham believed the Lord and encountered it to him as righteousness. Coming back to Nineveh, we read, and the people of Nineveh believed God. In other words, the people of Nineveh experienced the same blessing, the same saving faith of Father Abraham. Now, the amazing thing is that this vicious, brutal nation, the enemies of God and of, of God's people, would come to faith. I mean, what a powerful picture of God's grace and care to send them a message that they needed for salvation. Here's a picture of the Gentiles who were far off and alienated from any access to the covenant God of Israel. 
coming to faith. See, God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and that the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And here we see a partial fulfillment, the foreshadowing of an undivided kingdom shared equally between the Israelites and the Gentile. Now, the Ninevites had faith, and with that, action must follow. James tells us that faith without works is dead. We are reminded that true faith is shown by works of faith. And we see that happen here in Jonah 3, as the Ninevites immediately repented of their evil ways. You see, the Ninevites didn't simply show God lip service, but rather show genuine repentance when the destruction was revealed to them. If you look at verse 5, the rest of verse 5, it says, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Continuing in verse 6, we hear, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Everything done here is to show the repentance, the mourning, the lamenting, the devastating humiliation of the people. See, their hearts were heavy. They knew that they were unworthy before God, that their violent deeds and wicked ways had earned his wrath. When this seemingly crazed prophet came and cried out ultimate judgment against them, they didn't ridicule, but they agreed. They knew that his words were right. They believed God and fell before him in awe and reverence and inner devastation. In order to show the states of their heart, they changed their clothing from the king to the lowest of civilians. They took off their nice clothes and they put on rags and sackcloth. They sat down in ashes of burnt out fires, probably smearing those ashes on their heads to become even more. To show their, their repentance even more, excuse me. In verse 7, it tells us that the king ordered a fast. Not just for the people, but also for the animals. This is one of those things that I've missed, but as we were going through this with our youth group, it was neat. The guys picked up on this right away. It says, let them not feed or drink water, but let men and beasts be covered in sackcloth and call out mightily to God. Now imagine the scene. If you were to walk into Nineveh on that day, you would see people in tattered rags. They'd be dirty. They'd be weeping. They'd be fasting and they'd be crying out to this God. Not only that, but the cows and the sheep, the donkeys, the camels, and all the other livestock would also be draped in these rags and sackcloth and ashes. Now, the animals themselves weren't repenting of their sin, but I'm sure that they were frustrated. They were probably confused and angry. Hey, where's our food? Where's our water? What's going on here? So they're probably bellowing and braying, mooing and neighing and making all those beautiful animal noises when they're frustrated. Now, this scene would have been loud. It would have been strange. It would have been chaotic. It would have been embarrassing to have someone walk into our city and this happening to our city. This is not how the proud people of Nineveh acted. This was not the image they wanted to show the world. It wasn't distinguished. But that's the point. In repentance, the people sought to show the Lord their confession of their spiritually bankrupt state, that this is what we look like on the inside. In addition to this act of repentance, the people are told in verse 8 
to turn from their evil ways and from the violence in their hands. The people understood that true faith and repentance also meant turning away from sin. It meant reorienting their lives away from wickedness and toward righteousness. Nineveh was a city that was gripped by the reality of its own depravity. And while they assumed that God never owed them forgiveness, they understood that their only hope for salvation required them turning away from their evil and completely submitting to God's way. They couldn't serve two masters. They couldn't continue in evil in the light of the Lord's righteousness and his judgment. If they wanted to know God and be found in him, they understood that their allegiance to their former ways had to go. They had to put aside their violence and wickedness in order to experience God's mercy. Verse 9 tells us, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, the Ninevites hope for and long for God's mercy, but they also know that it's not owed to them. They're hoping that God will turn to them favorably. See, the nature of mercy is not receiving the consequences that you deserve. It's when you do something, you don't have to repay that fault. Grace is receiving something that you didn't earn. It's a free gift, something that's just given to you. Even though the Ninevites were really, really sorry for their sins, we see that in the passage. And even if they turned from their life of sin to pursue righteousness, which we see them doing in this chapter, God still did not owe them mercy. Even if they completely changed, they understood that it would be righteous for God's fierce wrath to pour out upon their city that he might reduce their walls to rubble, melt their houses into the sand, and annihilate the people without violating his justice. He had declared them guilty. Knowing this, the people of Nineveh poured themselves out before the Lord, not seeking justice, but rather mercy. Not what they earned, but grace. We have this view of repentance. Do we understand with the Apostle Paul that no one is righteous, no one, not one, that no one understands and no one seeks after God, that all have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, that left to ourselves and our own devices, we would never earn or merit the love of God, that we like sheep have all gone astray and become wretched. You see, repentance is not some kind of quid pro quo in which we can earn love by saying that we're sorry. No, it's a pouring out of our heart before the Lord and recognizing that grace isn't earned, but it's a gift of our great God. It's coming to God and saying, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. And that's what we, that's what happens when we come to the Lord in repentance, that our sins are heavy. And they're weighty, they're great, and we know we can't pay for them ourselves. Our repentance probably looks something like what happened in Nineveh, at least in our own ways, in our homes. We have far greater assurance than the people of Nineveh. We don't need to wait, thinking, who knows, maybe God will relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. No, we have a God that loves us and promises to forgive us when we come to him in repentance. 
our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And we see that in our last verse today. Look with me at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Notice that God saw that the Ninevites repented of their sin and turned from their evil ways, and God relented from his fierce anger and turned from the disaster that he had spoken. Between verses 9 and 10, the author intends for us to see a parallel between what happened with the Ninevites as they turned from their evil and violence and God turning away from his destruction that he intended, that he said he would pour out on Nineveh. And this is to show God's gracious dealing in response to heartfelt repentance. It is amazing to see that God would mercifully accept a broken and contrite heart rather than punish the unworthy sinner. When we come to texts like this that talk about God relenting from disaster, or in some translations it talks about him repenting from his disaster, we sometimes wonder how this squares with the immutability of God, that he never changes, that that his decrees are his decrees and they will come to pass. God had declared that the Ninevites were guilty, deserving punishment. How could he decide not to punish them? Isn't this a picture of God changing his mind? Or as Tim asked last night, God being dishonest with the people? The answer is no, absolutely not. One way to approach this is to say that God's sovereignty transcends our understanding, but he speaks to us in a way that we can understand. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce described it like this. This is a clear case of employing human language to describe that which is ultimately beyond beyond human language. God is always beyond our understanding. God is unchangeable, and that he does not deal falsely in revelation of his self to us. In other words, God is far above us. But in order for us to understand what's going on and to communicate what's happening here, the scriptures use human-like traits and language to describe God. We call it anthropomorphic language. See, God is God, and God will do what God will do. He does not change, but to help us understand what happens in repentance, the passage says that God relented or repented of his ways. The author of Jonah didn't intend for us to look at this as a philosophical argument or call into question God's immutability here, but rather to call our attention to God's superabundant grace and mercy towards sinners. Our voice shows us that there's another way, a better way of understanding this verse. Quote, Ultimately, the problem posed by the repentance of God is solved not by observing the repentance of men and women, but by noticing God repents of evil, he would do by taking the punishment for that evil upon himself. Quote, what he's getting at is forgiveness is costly, that it requires the one who has been offended to take it, to take the price for the one that offended them. That for the sake of the relationship, even though you've been wronged, say, I forgive you. You allow that wrong to act as if it had never been there. Now remember, God had already condemned the city of Nineveh and declared them guilty. So if God is just, he cannot simply turn a blind eye to sin. And here the sins of the Assyrians were too great to number. 
They may be considered the worst sinners on the planet at that time. How could God accept their repentance and still deal with their sin? Boyce says, it is because God was willing to suffer for their forgiveness. He says, not at the time of Jonah and the Ninevites, but he did so later in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God took the world's evil upon himself precisely so that we might repent of the need to visit the outworking of evil on men, unquote. You see, there is but one remedy for sin, for the sin of Nineveh. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. See, he bore the sins of the Assyrians on the cross so that God might turn away from the disaster that he said he would do to them without violating his justice. See, when they cried out in faith, God brought them in as children, not as enemies to be destroyed. And this is our God. And this is what he does for us today, that like the Old Testament, we too look to Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ to pay for our sin. He bore the sins of the Assyrians upon himself. He bore our sins upon himself on the cross. And when we look to him in faith, faith, confessing our spiritual bankruptcy, we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cannot outdo or outsin the grace of our Heavenly Father. This is true for us individually. This is true for us corporately as a church, the church of Jesus Christ. And it's true for His people, the lost sheep out in the workplaces and in our neighborhoods, on college campuses and at grocery stores that don't yet know Him, but are His people. So let us look to our Savior with grateful hearts and live in the knowledge of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And as we go out in our daily lives, may we be people that speak of Christ, that show the world our Savior, to show the world one who would relent from the justice that is owed to us out of his great love and mercy. May we be people that share the good news of our gracious God of mercy to a world that is not beyond his saving power. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.